All right, slowly but surely, I think the weather is getting a little bit cooler, so I'm really getting ready for the fall and for the students to come back. But praise God. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. If you're here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we give you all the glory, Lord, and Jesus, we acknowledge that you are right here in the midst, and we worship you. We thank you for that time of worship. We thank you now for your word, and Father God, we pray and ask that you would speak, that you would reveal yourself to us and your will, that you would make it so clear to us, not only your word, but your heart. Lord God, in the pages of scripture, we see your heart. So Lord God, reveal that to us. We thank you, Father, for this time. Be with everyone here. Be with everyone joining us online. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, today we're going to be finishing up our series, finally, praise God, in the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. And so two weeks ago, last week we had a little break because of Mission Sunday. But two weeks ago we started looking at the final church, which is the church at Laodicea. And the church at Laodicea was what? What characterized them? They were lukewarm, right? They were lukewarm. So right away in the first three verses of this letter, you see Jesus emphasizing that. He mentions three times they were neither hot nor cold. And in the Greek, I mentioned this last time, but it's more extreme than that. Jesus is saying you're neither icy cold nor boiling hot, but rather they were nauseatingly lukewarm. So like a tall, grass, a, grass, a tall glass of lukewarm milk or like a big mug of lukewarm coffee, they were perfectly unappetizing. You know, anytime you pick something up and you're like, ah, <laughs> it's just so disgusting. The moment you taste lukewarm drink. And think about this, but if you went to a restaurant and every time you ordered a drink and they gave you something lukewarm, what are they saying? Maybe not intentionally, but the, the message that they're saying is clear. I really don't care. I'm doing the bare minimum. I'm doing just enough to keep this business going, and my heart is really not here. Okay, that is what they're saying when they serve you lukewarm drink every time. And so when you look at the latest scenes, this was their spirituality. It was a spiritual sickness of the worst kind. And why do I say that? Well, it's because Jesus said that. So when you read through this letter, Jesus made it very clear, when we come to the Laodicean church, we have hit rock bottom. Yes, all the other churches we've looked at have problems as well. 
So we looked at the loveless church. We've looked at the compromised church, deceived church. We've even seen the dead church, although a few were still alive. But when you get to the Laodiceans, it's very clear by what Jesus said. They were the worst church because their condition was the worst. So again, how do we know this? Well, first, we know this by what Jesus said at the very beginning of the letter. But in every letter to the churches in Revelation, he starts out with a description of himself. He's basically giving his credentials. And in this letter, he starts out with the highest credentials. He pulls out the highest credentials before speaking to this church. So we already looked at this, but let me just review. But he said, I am the amen. Amen means not, I'm done with this prayer. That's what a lot of people think. But they they, what they're saying really is, indeed, truly. So when Jesus said, I am the Amen, he's saying, I don't just speak truth. I am the truth. And then he said, I am the true and faithful witness. So because I am truth, not just speaking truth, I am truth, everything that I've seen, all the things that I've witnessed about you guys, Laodiceans, I'm going to faithfully now tell you. I am a faithful and true witness. So kind of like in a court of law. Okay, is this witness true? And Jesus says, this witness is true. I am the truth. And then finally, he said, I am the beginning of God's creation. That could be a little confusing. Some people think that Jesus was the first created creature by God. No. What he's saying is, I am the one who began God's creation. In other words, all creation has come from me and is for me. How do we know this? Because other parts of the New Testament say that. John 1.3, Colossians 1.15. But this is Jesus saying, I am the great creator of everything you see. So what is Jesus saying here? Basically, he's saying, everything I'm about to tell you, I want you to hear. Why? Because I'm coming with the highest authority imagined. This is the highest authority coming to you. So here, Jesus pulls out his highest credentials. Why? Because they were dealing with the worst problem. So how do we know this was the worst problem? Jesus pulled out his highest credentials. We also know that their condition was the worst because Jesus gave them the most serious diagnosis. See, in all the other letters, when he starts out, he kind of commends them, tells them good things that they're doing. But there's no commendation here. In other letters, he kind of goes into an explanation. Well, you're kind of doing this, but this is happening, and, you know, you're getting attacked. And There's no explanation here. But he jumps right in, and he says, you Laodiceans are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So he just goes straight to the diagnosis. Again, why? Because their problem was the worst. And then third, he also gave them the harshest warning. He didn't give a warning like this to any other church. But he said to this church, if you do not repent and become zealous, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the real word there is vomit. I will throw you up. So Jesus was saying, your spiritual condition makes me want to throw up. That's what he's saying. Again, why is he saying that? Because their condition was the worst. In Jesus' mind, it actually required rejection. In fact, rejection with disgust. That's how bad it was. So this was the condition of the Laodiceans. So it's very clear by what Jesus says. This was very serious, but why? Right? Why, why is this so serious? Because if you think about being lukewarm, I and mean, a lot of us, maybe we kind of go into a lukewarm season, you know, even maybe during COVID at many times, I felt lukewarm. Okay, what is the big deal with that? Isn't lukewarm just a few degrees away from hot? So why such the intensity here? Why such the judgment, Jesus? 
Well, last time we saw how being lukewarm is really more than just being a little bit cooler than hot. But what is being lukewarm? Well, lukewarm is really playing games with the one who sacrificed the most for you. I'll say that again. But being lukewarm is playing games with the one who sacrificed the most for you. It's kind of like having a spouse who sacrificed everything so that you guys could be together. And so this spouse is working day and night, two different jobs, so that you can make ends meet and be together. And because of that, you're thankful enough. You're thankful enough to show appreciation a little bit. Okay, you love that spouse enough in order to show some affection. You're committed enough to stay in that relationship together. And yet all the while, as your spouse is doing this, you are getting closer and closer to someone else. Maybe somebody at work. And every time you get to work, you're getting all excited. Oh, that person's there. And your heart's getting drawn away. And all the while, your spouse is sacrificing everything for you. And so now, in light of that, it shouldn't be a mystery why when Jesus says, you do that to me, this makes my stomach turn upside down. This makes me sick. It makes me want to throw up. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate sacrificer. He sacrificed everything, his very own life. So that we could be together with him. So the lukewarm Christian has her arms around Jesus, but her eyes are looking past Jesus with desire at somebody else, at the world. That's the picture. So now we can understand a little bit more. Jesus says, I just want to throw up. See, this is a lot more than just a few degrees away from hot. Your arms are around me, but your eyes are somewhere else. So this is the lukewarm church and the lukewarm Christian. So what are we talking about? This is a divided heart. This is a divided heart. But these are Christians who have the gospel and believe just enough to say, yes, I think I want Jesus. Yeah, how many guys ever ever said that? We all said that. That's why you're here. Yeah, I think I want Jesus. I believe he can add value to my life. I mentioned this last time. And so this is what they're looking for in their lives. They're looking for things to add value. You know, I got this good life going, and I just want things to bring more value to my life. And then finally, you meet Jesus one day. Oh, I think he can bring more value too. So yeah, I want Jesus, but I also have this good thing going in my lives. Of course, it can be better, but I'm looking for things to add value, and now you found Jesus. Yes, he adds value to my life. So I'll take him. I'll take Jesus. But after you take Jesus, you think to yourself, but no need to mess this up, right? Why? Because I have a good thing going in my life. I have a good job. Of course, it could be better. I'm making good money, but it could be more. I have a house or an apartment, but I could have more. But I have a good thing going, so why mess this up? You surrender everything to God? Why do that? Take risks to follow him? Why do that? You get zealous and bring inconveniences into my life? I mean, things that I didn't even deal with before? Why do that? I mean, all I want is Jesus to just bring some more value to my life. But I already have this good thing going. And so this is the lukewarm life. And you know what happens? This kind of a life settles into a life of bare minimums. And so you see this all the time with believers, don't we? But you see a life of bare minimums. So the lukewarm Christian will give of their time and money, but never beyond what makes them comfortable. The moment feels uncomfortable, ooh, no, no, that's enough. That's enough. They'll bring their bodies to church, but their minds, they leave it drifting around in the world. It's a life of bare minimums. They attend gatherings, but only if I will get something out of it. Am I going to get something out of this? I don't know. 
Oh, no, you require something of me? Oh, no, I definitely won't go then. So it's a life of bare minimums. And so in this kind of lukewarm Christianity, what Jesus ultimately becomes, and I said this last time, is he's the cherry on top. On top of this pile of good stuff I already have in my life, and I just want to bring Jesus as a cherry on top. Just place him just, just right there. So beautiful. I'm a Christian. Look at me, I'm a Christian. And so I worship Jesus because he has value to my life, the life I already have, the life I already love in this world. And what's more, the lukewarm Christian, this Christian life is not a happy coincidence. It's not like you suddenly just kind of fell into it, but this is actually the goal. This is the goal of countless Christians, especially in this country. But this is what they're aiming for, right? Lukewarm spirituality is exactly what I want. And they put it under the banner of a balanced life. This is the balanced life I want. I have all this stuff in the world that I'm going after, but I also want Jesus because he has value, and I just perfectly want it in this calibrated way. So they have calibrated their lives perfectly so they can have their cake and eat it too. It's trying to have the blessings of Jesus without giving up the comforts and securities of the world. It's worshiping things like money, job, security, relationships, all the great things in life. And are they good? Yeah, they're good. But it's worshiping them, deeply trusting in them, but all the while you're also making motions to worship Jesus. Why? Because you're a Christian after all, right? So I'll make motions to worship Jesus and I sort of trust him. But when push comes to shove, I really trust these things. So remember, the lukewarm heart is never all or nothing. So if you're looking for like evidences of like black and white, of sin and righteousness, you're not going to find it in the lukewarm church. You're going to always see a mixture, and that's what lukewarm is. And my son, again, he loves cold drinks, and he loves hot drinks, and he knows how to make lukewarm drinks. You mix them together. And so that is the lukewarm church. That is the lukewarm believer. It is a mixed heart. It is a divided heart. And this kind of heart never seems to see the reality of who they are. They never seem to know the reality of who they are as God sees you, as God sees them. And so when these lukewarm Christians look at themselves, they believe everything's good. Our church is good. I go to a good church, and you'll hear things like that. I go to a good church. Why? Because they believe in Jesus. They open up the Bible. I don't know what else they (laughs) say during the sermons, but they do open up the Bible. And I have a good life. I mean, look, God blessed my life. I have all these good things in my life. So they see themselves as good. Now listen to the Laodiceans, verse 17. This is the lukewarm Christian every time. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. When Jesus mentioned that, he was rebuking them. This is what you say. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. In other words, I have a good thing. I have a good life going. So rather than weeping and repenting for a divided heart, you know what's going on? They're boasting. So lukewarm Christians walk around feeling good about their lives. They don't feel bad about their lives. They are good. I go to a good church. I go to a good small group. I have the blessing of God in my life. And all the while, they're serving the things of the world. So again, go back to the example of the spouse. That example of the spouse who is working two jobs, sacrificing everything so you guys could be together. So again, this person is pouring out, and because of that, you're thankful, sort of. right? You're thankful enough. And you love the spouse, sort of. You, you love the spouse enough. Okay, you're committed, sort of. Okay, you're committed enough to be in that relationship, but all the while, that person 
is seeing, or I should say, not that person, you, if you're the person who's lukewarm, you're being drawn away to somebody else. And now, rather than being broken over that, rather than being repenting over that, the lukewarm person, because they're so unaware of the condition of their own heart, they are boasting about it. This is the lukewarm Christian. They are boasting, going, do you see this amazing setup I have? I have the spouse who just works so hard for me and I'm so thankful because that spouse supports me. But man, I have this fun thing going at work as well. And so they're boasting about it. And so this is how countless Christians live in their relationship with God. I know it just sounds like, really? Is this the truth? Because it sounds so stark and so ugly when you put in these other terms. But that is the relationship of, of countless Christians, especially in this country. And as Jesus looks at that, he says, you know what? This makes me want to throw up. This makes me want to vomit. And so this is the lukewarm church. And last week, I'm not going to go into this, but I spent a good amount of time talking about how more than any other church in this world, I believe when you read this passage, this letter, we need to see the mirror, the person in the mirror. Because more than any other church that I've seen, this is the church in America. Not every church, but on the whole, this is the church in America. Okay, what other church in this world has so much going for them, apart from Christ, where they love the life that they have, the life of wealth and prosperity, unimaginable wealth, to 50% or more of people in the world. And yet they still believe in Jesus. We live in an 80% plus Christian nation, right? And so what other church in the world could be like the Laodiceans? It's us. It's us. So when Jesus says all these things and these dire warnings, this is to us. He says, whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. I believe when we hear that, our ears should prick up. So this is the lukewarm church. This could be likely us. And so with a condition this grave, this egregious to Jesus, okay, what hope is there? Okay, what cure is there? And the good news is there is a cure. There's a cure. So this is what I want to look at today. But there is a cure that Jesus wants to bring to the lukewarm believer and the lukewarm church. And when you look at this letter, in fact, this entire letter is a cure. So you see this cure unfolding through the entire letter. The letter itself is a part of the cure. So what do I mean? Well, through this letter, Jesus was taking an inventory of the Laodiceans' true condition. He was taking an inventory. And this is something that Jesus does. And I'm going to talk about this more later, but I think we need to have a more robust understanding of our relationship with God. Again, most of us, we just see our relationship with God as, God, help me, take away bad things. God, help me, I want good things. And it ends there. But there is so much more to our relationship with God. And here's another thing. He takes inventory of our lives. He will expose the things in our hearts, mainly through the word of God. And this is what Jesus was doing here. He was taking inventory of the Laodiceans' true condition. Why? Because no disease can be cured unless there's first what? A diagnosis. You've got to have a diagnosis. No one can get out of deep debt until you do first what? Open up your bank statement and see what's going on. You've got to take an inventory. Where's all this money going? Why am I in so much debt? You have to take an inventory of your true condition. And so this is what Jesus was doing in this letter. In fact, this is what Jesus was doing in all seven letters to all the churches in Revelation. Because through these seven letters, Jesus was giving his church at that time and through all time a catalog of struggles and problems that we're going to face. 
This is what Jesus is doing. He's giving us a picture of what we might look like at any given moment, in any given season. And so these letters are, for today, they're so relevant. Even today, they're as fresh as when they were first written. I love what Charles Spurgeon says, but he says, the word of God never wears out. The words still glow on his pages as when they were first written. And it's so true. Get 2,000-year-old letters, you open them up, oh my goodness, this is to me. And as you read it, Jesus is scanning your heart. He's taking an inventory. It's a cast scan of your heart. And so what are you doing well? What are you not doing well? What are the things going on in your heart? What divisions are there? What dangers are there lurking in your heart? See, this is an inventory. And I hope as we've been going through this entire series, you guys have been doing that. I hope you're not just like, okay, another letter. But this is Jesus saying, this is your heart, right? Maybe not every letter, but throughout, pieces of the letters. And why is he doing that? Because any cure begins there. So do you see how the letter itself is a cure, is a part of the cure? Okay, but that's not all. Through this letter, Jesus also gave harsh warnings to the Laodiceans. So this is another part of the cure. But no one comes out of destructive behavior like drug use, let's say. Let's say you know somebody who's abusing drugs. But nobody will come out of that unless at some point someone confronts them with a harsh warning. Okay, anybody who has been destructive in their lives, they will only come out of it if they are confronted. And I've seen many people being destructive and they are always confronted at some point. And the more destructive the behavior, the more harsh the warning. So if you know somebody who's abusing drugs, the warning that they need to hear is very different than somebody else that you know who just spends too much money buying clothes, right? The confrontation is going to be very different. Because the more dire the condition, the more destructive the behavior, the more harsh the warning. And so when you look at this letter, Jesus' warning, why is it so harsh? Why is he using language like, I want to throw you up out of my mouth? That's what he's saying. You make me want to vomit. Why such harsh language because it's matching the condition so in a way he was trying to shock the Laodiceans it's like oh my god this is us we make you sick Jesus they're walking around thinking we're good right they're boasting I'm rich I'm doing well hey I'm getting a promotion at work you know I go to a church that seems okay I'm committed I come out every Sunday I mean I'm doing well and Jesus is like you make me sick so again don't hear this as me being harsh. These are simply the words of Jesus. This is the language he used. He tells his beloved, you make me sick. Why? Because that's part of the cure. The more destructive the behavior, the more harsh the warning. But here's another part of the cure, is rebuke and discipline. So Jesus said in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove. Another word is rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. You know, a few weeks ago, I talked about how God will test us to build up our faith. We, we talked about endurance. And the reason why I talked about that is because a lot of people don't understand all the different components of their relationship with God. Well, here's another component to your relationship with God. Earlier, I talked about taking inventory. Well, here's something else God does. He disciplines. He disciplines. I know you've heard this here and there, but is it a reality in your life? Do you understand that God disciplines us? Okay, we need to come to terms with this. This is a part of your walk with God. God will discipline you. He will discipline me. He must discipline us. Why? Because he loves you. He loves us. 
It's his love that causes him to discipline. So in the Bible, God's discipline is never connected to his wrath. Because sometimes when I discipline my children, I could get very angry, and so they kind of see it as a wrathful thing. But in the Bible, God's discipline is always connected to his love, not his wrath. God's discipline is not a sign of his judgment. It's a sign of love. The Bible said God disciplines the one he loves. And some of you might be under God's discipline right now, and you don't know it. And the reason is because this is not even on your grid in your relationship with God. Again, your relationship with God is, God, help me. I don't like this bad stuff. God, bless me. I want this good stuff. And it ends there. Oh, and then maybe I should go to church and read my Bible. But there's so much more going on in your walk with God. You may be under the discipline of God right now, and you don't even know it. You just think, oh, what is all this happening? Again, God, take it away. I don't like this. And God's thinking, saying, I'm bringing it into your life. I brought it into your life. This is my discipline. And his discipline comes in varying degrees and varying different ways, but he will discipline us. But one of the first ways he disciplines is he speaks to us. He speaks to us. How many guys know God speaks? You know, it, it is just one of the saddest things that I see is a Christian who says he's a Christian or she's a Christian their entire lives, and they never have a testimony of God speaking to them. Not once do they have a testimony of, yeah, God spoke to me very something specific through the word of God or in my times of prayer or worship or even through another believer, and it was exactly something that I needed to hear, something that I could not have known apart from him, something that nobody else knew, but God spoke to me, right? They don't have testimonies of that. And yet the Bible is so clear. God speaks. God speaks. Even recently, I'm not going to share details because it has to do with my family, but God spoke repeatedly. I remember like two, I think three days in a row, every time I opened up my Bible to do a devotional, boom. It was such a specific thing where it was unmistakable. Even the words in the verse, it was exactly the word that, that pierced my heart. That pierced my heart. One, one was the word devoted. The other one was the word discouraged. Back to back. Are you devoted? Or are you discouraged? And that was exactly the issue. I knew it. Immediately when I read it, God was speaking to me. It was such a specific, tailored word for my situation in that season, right at that moment. God speaks. So that's one of the first ways he disciplines. And when he speaks, what happens? Your conscience gets pricked. Oh, it's kind of like you're asleep and then you wake up. God, you spoke to me. God, you spoke to me. But then, if you don't listen, right, if we don't respond, then he will continue to speak, and then what will happen? He will rebuke you. So in the beginning, it's just a gentle word that kind of gives you guidance, maybe wakes you up, and then you don't listen, and then it's a very stern word, and that's happened to me. That's actually happened to me even through my children. As they're doing devotions, they're like, Daddy, Daddy, this is my devotion for today, and they shared it. Oh, my gosh, it was such a rebuking word to me, right? Like God rebuked me through my children's devotion. That happened to me. And so God will rebuke you through his word. He will even challenge you through messages. Maybe even through the series, through the letters of Revelation. But he will challenge you. He will confront you, right? He will confront you through other believers. This is all discipline, brothers and sisters. He is disciplining you. And then if you still persist, in your path, you're like, eh, I don't know. I don't know about all this, right? I still, I, I still want to do all this because my heart just wants to do what it wants to do. And isn't that the struggle all the time? Our hearts just want to do what it wants to do. And if we persist in that way, then brothers and sisters, God in his love will continue to discipline even further. 
At that point, losses and crosses begin to break into your life. Okay, I like that phrase. Losses and crosses break into your life. Okay, what do I mean? Things begin to come against you. They fall apart in you, around you. I mean, things are not working out. And what is going on? That is God's discipline. Okay, I, I, I thought I was going to go and do this. No, that got stopped. Okay, I applied to get into this program. No, you got rejected. What, what is going on? Okay, I thought I was going to go and make some of this money and then pay off this. And no, now you're in deeper debt. What is going on? Okay, this is God's discipline. It is losses and crosses breaking into your life. You know, many years ago, I remember a student in my college ministry. This was not here. This was back in L.A., so nobody knows him. But I remember at one point, he began to get close to this one young lady that was coming out to our church. And this young lady was a seeker. She was not a confirmed believer. She had not made a profession of faith yet, but she was getting closer. But she was a seeker. And this brother, who was a Christian, started liking this girl, right? Started having feelings. And I knew, okay, I saw this happening right in front of me, right? Every time I saw them, I saw this, this was happening. And so I knew already this is not going to be good. If this guy starts to date this girl, this will not be good for him or for her. I just knew it. It was clear as day. I knew that God was not going to bless this relationship. And so I called this brother. Okay, I tried to be loving, and so I called him. I sat down with him, had a talk, and I told him, you know what? You shouldn't date this girl. Okay, don't, don't do it. This isn't going to be blessed by God. And I could tell that entire time when I was talking, he heard nothing. Right? He didn't hear a thing. The store was closed. The lights were off. So there was nothing, right? Just went in, went out. And so then ultimately, he decided, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I said, okay, yeah, you're an adult. I mean, I'm not going to force you to do anything. You're an adult. Make your choice. So he did. He decided, I'm going to date this girl. So sure enough, in a few months, it only lasted a few months, it started to break up. It ended very badly. The young lady, who was a seeker, stopped coming to our church. I hope she continued to seek God, but she didn't seek God at our church anymore. And then the young man was left with a crushed heart, and he really entered a, a, a season of spiritual darkness. I don't know what else to call it, but he really struggled after that. And rather than say, see, I told you, my heart was grieving, but I knew this, though. This is God's discipline. This is God's discipline. He loves you so much. This is his discipline in your life. That's what I'm talking about, losses and crosses. They begin to break into your life. Sometimes losses and crosses will come to build endurance. He's testing us. But other times, it's just purely as a discipline to rebellion. But God will bring these things into our lives. So God disciplines the one he loves. This is another part of the cure. And so if you're a true child of God, you cannot stay in a lukewarm place. And the reason why is because God will confront you. Well, it'll begin with the word. He will speak to you. And then he will rebuke you. And then he will confront you. And if you still persist in that lukewarm state, he's going to begin to let things fall apart all around you and within you. Right? Losses and crosses. Why? So that he can bring the scissors and cut that cyst right off. There is something growing in your life. It is not healthy. And he will come in with those sharp scissors to just cut it right off out of love. It is love. So these are all different kinds of cures that God will use in his sovereign love and wisdom. They're very necessary. But that is not the ultimate cure. And so all these things I mentioned, they're right there in the letter. Okay, he mentions every single one. But here's the ultimate cure that he brings up in this letter. Okay, and this is the beautiful thing that he mentions. But the ultimate cure to lukewarmness 
is Jesus himself. Okay, this is what he's offering. He's saying, it is me. And why is Jesus himself the ultimate cure to lukewarmness? The reason is because lukewarmness ultimately is what? It's a broken relationship. Again, go back to that picture of the spouse just pouring out, sacrificing for you. But your heart is with somebody else, but also with the spouse, and you're kind of in between. What is that? That's a broken relationship, right? That's a broken relationship. If you're in that kind of a marriage, I mean, God have mercy. That is a bad marriage. That will soon fall apart if nothing changes. That is a broken relationship. So what's the only lasting cure to a broken relationship? You've got to restore that relationship. And how do you do that? You need to have Jesus. See, it's your broken relationship with Jesus. That's what lukewarmness really is. So it's not like, oh, yeah, I'm not fired up right now. That's what people say. I'm just a little bit lukewarm. I'm not fired up. Again, it's not a mysterious reason why you're not fired up. You're not fired up for God because your heart is drawn to something else, and that is a broken relationship. Okay, We've got to be clear about this. Okay, We've got to look at the x-ray clearly. It's not just, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of in a, I don't know, a different season, right? I've heard that. Oh, I'm just kind of in a different season. I used to be on fire for God, but now it's just kind of different. No, it's not different. Your heart is being drawn away to something else, and you have a broken relationship with God. That's why you feel lukewarm. And so the cure is you need to have a restored relationship with Jesus. It's very simple. And this is exactly what Jesus offered the Laodiceans out of love. He offered himself. And, and, and picture this. Jesus just got done saying, and again, this, this isn't just a word, right? But he literally said vomit. You make me want to throw up the way you're treating me. Yeah, I died for you. I gave everything for you. And at one point you accepted it. You don't have to accept my love, but you did. Okay, you came up to the altar, you said, I do, right? You married me, we're in a covenant, and now you're all getting close to other people, right? You're getting excited to see other people. So you make me want to throw up. And then look at the grace of God, look at his mercy, but then he comes back and he says, and yet, Laodiceans, I want to offer myself to you again. Right? Would you do that? If your spouse was cheating on you, if your boyfriend or girlfriend was seeing somebody else behind your back, I mean, would you do that? Offer yourself again? But this is Jesus. This is the grace of God. I want to offer myself to you again. Okay, you literally make me want to throw up, but I want to come and be with you again. Why? Because I love you. I love you. How many of you guys know that people that you love can still make you sick? <laughs> so yeah, people who love you, actually, they can make you more sick than people that you don't love. But Jesus is saying, I love you, but you make me want to throw up. But I still love you, and so I offer myself to you. So look at verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. Okay, that's a very important phrase, from me. Circle, underline that, from me. Not anybody else, but I want you to come to me. Okay, you make me sick the way you're behaving, but come to me. Okay, I invite you again. I love you. Come to me. I counsel you. Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, truly rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's saying, come to me, and I will give you. And notice here, what is he mentioning? He's mentioning everything that the Laodiceans were going after. The very things that they were cheating on Jesus with, if you want to use that language, because they were looking to their riches. Remember the Laodicean city? The city of Laodicea was one of the wealthiest cities in ancient times. Literally a banking center built on a pile of money. They were also a medical center. They came up with one of the earliest cures for an eye disease. 
exported that and made tons of more money. They were also known as a commerce center, especially for clothing, because they had this kind of sheep that grew in their land that had this luxurious, soft, black wool, very famous in ancient times, written about, outside the Bible even. And they would weave this wool into clothing. And so because of that, they trusted in these things. Look at our city. Look at our church. We are wealthy. We are prosperous. We have money. We have this medicine for our eyes. We have clothing more gorgeous and splendorous than anything else. And yet Jesus comes and says, look, all the things that you're wanting from these different things, I will offer you. Right? That's what he's saying. Come to me. But not only that, but then he offers his very own presence. But look at Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So he's offering his very own self, his own presence. So what is Jesus doing here in these passages? Well, he's basically giving an invitation to this lukewarm church. And by the way, this invitation goes out today. The word of God never wears out. It's as fresh today as when it was written. But he's giving this invitation to every lukewarm Christian that's hearing this right now. But he's inviting lukewarm Christians to repent and receive him. That's what it is. It's a call to repent and receive him. So he mentioned repentance earlier, but repentance is a change of mind about the way you're living. That will result in a change of direction in the way you're living. That is repentance. If you don't see a change of mind in the way you're living that results in a change of direction in the way you're living, you haven't repented. But that is repentance. He's saying repent. Change your mind about the things that are good in your life and the things that are bad. You have it backwards. Change your mind. Change your mind about how you feel about our relationship. Our relationship is actually shattered. It's not good. Change your mind about your life and change the direction of your life. That's repentance. But he doesn't stop there. He says, receive. After you repent, he says, receive. Receive what? Me, Jesus says. Right? We just read those verses. He says, receive me and what I'm offering you. Okay, this is so vital because the relationship was broken. So now you got to come back to me, right? If you're cheating on your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, how's the, the only way you can restore the relationship, you got to go back, right? you got to go back to your spouse. you got to go back to your boyfriend or girlfriend. you got to restore that. Otherwise, that relationship's gone. It's broken forever. And so Jesus says, come back to me, receive me. And and again, this is stunning. Okay, this is stunning, given how the Laodiceans were treating Jesus. So he says, repent and receive what Jesus is offering. So again, when you go back to verse 18, he is offering the very three things that the world couldn't give to the Laodiceans. The Laodiceans thought the world was giving it to them. Okay, wealth, money, fame, this, this, this ointment that could heal eye, eye disease. He had this beautiful clothing. They thought they were wealthy, prosperous, living the good life. All the things they thought they had, Jesus is saying, no, I will give you the real thing. He was offering the real thing the world couldn't give. So true riches, true sight, true clothing and splendor. The latest scenes thought they had all of these things. But like every idol, every idol in your life, in my life, idols never deliver. See, that's the wicked scandal of idols. They never deliver. They promise the world and they deliver nothing. They actually deliver less than nothing. They take away. They take away. 
So what are you trusting in right now? Okay, well, what are the things? Maybe it's not riches, but is it sight? Do you walk around believing that, yeah, I'm a Christian and I see things, right? Oh, I see you, I see you, I see what you're doing and you're judging. But what are you trusting in? Maybe you're trusting in all the clothing. And this clothing here is not just physical clothing, but it could be a symbol for a righteousness that you're wearing around. Maybe you're walking around trusting in this kind of righteousness of your own life. Well, look at me. I mean, I go to the Promise Church. I read my Bible. I try to give a buck to a homeless guy when he reaches out. I mean, I am a good person. And so you're walking around with this trust in your own righteousness. And yet, listen to what Jesus says. But here's the truth. You're wretched. You're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. Again, he doesn't say that to just put us down, but he says it in love. I want to give you a true inventory. Here's the truth. Why? Because even as you're going around feeling like that, oh, I'm good, I'm doing all these things, your heart is divided. Your heart is divided. And because your heart is here in the world and your heart is kind of here with me, you have nothing. You have nothing. And so this is what Jesus is saying. Look, come to me. Okay? And, and when he said these words, it should sound very familiar or similar to us as Isaiah 55, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah. But this is exactly what Jesus said in Isaiah 55. He repeats it again in Revelation 3. Jesus is the word of God. He gave the entire word to us. But when he says come and buy, he doesn't literally mean, hey, I want you to make some money and then come and buy this from me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying come buy with no money. This is what Isaiah 55 says. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In other words, it's free. It's not free. Somebody paid for it. Jesus did. So he bought it, but it's free. This is what he's saying. Everything that you're going after in the world, the world will not deliver. Come get it from me. So he's offering himself again. Come get it from me. So this is what he says. But then, and we're going to end with this. But the most glorious thing is, it's not just about, oh yeah, the true righteousness, the true riches, the true sight that Jesus offers. But Jesus is offering himself. He is offering himself. Look at Revelation 3.20. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, promise church, if anyone here hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You know, J.I. Packer said, a relationship with God is calculated to thrill a person's heart. And if you don't understand what that means, then I have pity for you. Because that is the inheritance of every Christian, every believer, as you know the living God. And it is a relationship that thrills your heart. You know, a little while ago, I shared how God spoke to me recently in a very specific way in my devotions. I mean, yeah, it was challenging. One of the words was a rebuke, but it thrilled my heart. Why? Because it's like, God, you see me. You see me. And it's unmistakable. It's not like I'm trying to fit like a square peg into a round hole. Oh, I think if, no, it was exactly, even the specific word, exactly what was on my heart. It's like, God, you see me. You see me. It thrills the heart when you know that Jesus is alive and he is in your life. You know, recently, I've been, I don't know why, hearing a lot about celebrities passing away. I think most recently there was a celebrity uh, she passed away by being in a car accident. I think it was a DUI. She went brain dead and then passed away. You might know who I'm talking about. But from what I know about her life, she never knew God. Her whole life, 
she got into a lot of like strange other things, new age things, um, you know, same sex relationship. I mean, she got into a lot of other stuff. Eventually, she kind of came back to a more like traditional family life. But she never knew God. And I remember when I heard of her passing, it wasn't the fact that she passed away, but what really made me sad, and I was genuinely sad when I read it. What made me so sad is here's a person who lived her entire life and not once knew the living God. The person that she was created to know. This person was literally created in her mother's womb to know the living God, and she never knew this God. Not once did she hear his voice. Do you know how precious that is? To hear the living God's voice to you in a very personal way. She never heard. She never knew the peace and the joy of the living God in her life. She never knew the eternal life bubbling up within her heart. She never knew any of that. Now she's gone for all eternity. And that broke my heart. That made me very sad that day. So now when you come here, look at this. These are people who have rejected Jesus, right? Jesus literally said, you have a broken relationship with me. You make me want to throw up. Because you're basically cheating on me. I mean, that's what this lukewarmness is all about. Let's just call it for what it is. You're cheating on Jesus, and yet Jesus is coming back going, I love you, though. And he says, I am, I'm standing right here at the door of your heart. Okay, that's what commentators say. This is the door of the believer's heart. It's not the front door of the church. <laughs> right? It's the door of the believer's heart. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, and notice right there, he makes it personal. See, this entire time he was talking about the church, right? He was addressing the entire church, it's in the plural. But for the first time in verse 20, he switches it unexpectedly to singular, to the individual. If anyone, any of you, any of, even me, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him or her. In other words, I will come into your heart and eat with him and her, and he with me. See, he switches it, because he knows this is a personal relationship. Yes, I've been addressing the entire church all along, but this is personal now. I want you to know me. I want you to be in fellowship with me. So here, a lot of people, Bible scholars, have compared this picture here to another Old Testament picture in Ecclesiastes. But, um, oh no, I'm sorry, the Song of Solomon. But this is where... The beloved, the king, is knocking on the door to the honeymoon chamber. The king and his bride just were married. He had to go away for a little while. Now he's back, and he's knocking on the door. And so it says here, listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove. When he says sister, he doesn't mean sister. Okay, this isn't the south. Okay, this is, okay, bad, bad joke. <laughs> he's talking about, like, you know, my spiritual sister, but this is my wife, right? Open to me, my wife, my darling, my dove, my flawless one, my beloved. Thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved. I know it's a little strange because this is a very romantic picture, and, you're, and especially for a guy. It's like, I don't know, do I have this kind of relationship with Jesus? But he's talking to the entire church. Remember, we are his bride. But it is also personal. Jesus is knocking. Is your heart jumping? Oh, Jesus wants to speak to me. He wants to have a relationship with me again. It's been broken, but he wants to restore it. And so this is such a surprising picture. Again, I mentioned this, but consider who he's talking to, the people that make him sick. He's coming to them. But that's not all. This is also a surprising picture because up until now, Jesus was where? Where was Jesus up until now in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3? 
He was in the midst of his church. That's how the whole thing started, Revelation 1.13. And I, John, saw in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Every letter he sent out, Jesus saying, I am right in the middle of your church saying all this stuff. But for the Laodiceans, what happened to Jesus? He got pushed out onto the outside. So for the believer, Jesus should be right here in the center of your life, in the center of your heart. Now, I don't want to get into like the theology of can Jesus really leave? I believe he can't. Maybe this is more of a figurative expression, a picture. But whatever it is, theologically, Jesus was on the outside. Okay, that's the point. He was on the outside of this church. He was on the outside of the hearts of the believers in that church, and he's knocking. I think what it is is not physically he was outside, but it's just showing broken relationship. It's showing a broken relationship. The picture I get is if you are in an apartment with two bedrooms, you and a roommate living together, you guys are still living together, right? You're still in the same apartment, but let's say you never, ever talk to each other, right? You're never going into your roommate's room, and your roommate never comes into your room. You have a broken relationship. I think that's the picture here. You're still living with Jesus. He's still living with you, but he is on the outside of the room of your heart, and so he's knocking. And so that is surprising. Here's another surprising thing. If you were locked out of your own home, remember the church belongs to Jesus. This is his home. If you were locked out of your own home and you have the keys, are you going to stand at the door and knock? <laughs> is that the way you treat your own house? No, you go, dude, where's my key? <laughs> you know, I, like, why is this door locked, right? And you just go in. You just go in, Right? Like, this is my house, and you kick everyone else who doesn't belong, and you kick them out. And look at the grace and the tenderness of Jesus. And trust me, he has the keys. It's not like he's like, oh, where are my keys? He has the keys. In fact, in an earlier letter, the letter right before, he says, I have the keys to the kingdom. I have the keys of David, the messianic kingdom. Jesus has the keys. And he's at the door of his own home, and yet he says, I'm knocking. Why? Because he doesn't want to just barge in force a relationship with you he wants us to open our hearts to him he wants us to let him in so do you see how surprising this picture is and so this is the grace and the tenderness of Jesus so do you understand what he's offering you and then finally once he comes in he says if you open the door see I'm standing at the door knocking but if you hear my voice and open the door if your heart jumps at the sound of my voice Oh, it's Jesus. I haven't really been with him in a while. I want to be with Jesus. And you open the door of your heart. He says, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So he's saying, we're going to have dinner together. We're going to have dinner. And it's not a dinner that he's expecting you to prepare, but this is DoorDash, right? He's bringing dinner. He's coming with dinner to your place of dwelling, which is really his house. But he's bringing dinner. He himself is, in fact, the banquet. And so where do we see that picture before? Jesus is always talking about him being the banquet and bringing dinner and eating with him. He's always talking about that. Well, in the Gospels, every single Gospel, we saw this picture, but Mark 6 really t- lays it out clearly. But we see the picture of Jesus bringing the banquet in the wilderness, and that's what he wants to do for all of us, brothers and sisters. Okay, a lot of you guys, you guys are believers. You are the beloved of God. God loves you with an undying love, and you, you have a broken relationship with him. That's why you feel lukewarm. It's not because you're in a different season. You have a broken relationship. Your heart is being drawn to other things. 
And so now, in that wilderness, Jesus is saying, I'm bringing a banquet to you. He's coming to you. He's not saying, hey, come to me. He's coming to you with a banquet. And so it says here in Mark 6.41, it's not going to be up there. But taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Among them all. And then later on, what does it say about that banquet in the wilderness? It says, they were all satisfied. Okay, they ate and all were satisfied. Verse 42. And not only that, verse 43. Then they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. And they had to gather it all up. Why? Because there was an abundance. So do you see what Jesus is offering? Okay, do you see what you're going after, Jesus is saying? In the world, these things never deliver. Idols promise the world and deliver nothing, less than nothing. And yet Jesus is saying, I'm at the door of your heart, I'm knocking. If your heart jumps and you open the door, I will bring a banquet, DoorDash, right? He's like, I'm going to bring this, and look, it will satisfy and it will be in abundance. Okay, that's what it is. The picture every time of Jesus' banquet, it always satisfies and it is always more than enough. There is an abundance. And so this was actually a, a, a big question when I preached through Mark 6. But who's leading you right now? And who are you dining with? Okay, who's leading you right now? Okay, maybe you're doing well. Maybe you're in a good season, but maybe you're in a wilderness. Again, it kind of feels off. You're not really that passionate for God, but let's call for what it is. You have a divided heart. And in that place, who's leading you? Who are you dining with? And so that invitation still stands today, brothers and sisters. Jesus says, come, He'll open the door, and I have a banquet for you. I really do. And then he says, and I'm just going to mention this, and we'll close. But he says, to the one who reconnects with me, begins to commune with me again, that person will conquer. And I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that, that is shocking. That is shocking. And I'll just make this point and then close. But he's talking to a people who are cheating on him, right? They're cheating on him. They make him sick. And so now Jesus is saying, I want to come into your house to eat with you. I want to be at the dining table with you, right? Commune with you. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, but if you do that, then you're going to conquer. And then one day, you're not just going to be at the table with me. You're going to be on the throne with me. And so I'll just leave it at that. I don't fully understand that, but it blows my mind that Jesus would even offer that to a lukewarm church. And so he's offering that to all of us, brothers and sisters. Hey, do you hear him? Are you going to reconnect with Jesus? Okay, let's bow before him. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord God, you are an awesome God. And Lord Jesus, ultimately, it never pays to cheat. It never pays to cheat. And cheaters never win. And that's what it is to be lukewarm. Is to be a cheater. Is to be somebody with a divided heart. Is somebody that just sees you as something that will add value. Just one more thing in my life on top of like a hundred other things. 
And that kind of life has nothing to do with the Christian life, the true Christian life. In the true Christian life, we are married to you forever and ever in an eternal covenant. And we sacrifice and give up everything to be with you because you did that for us. And anything we need, we now receive from you. We receive it from you, Lord. So thank you, Lord Jesus. We want to reconnect with you. So even today, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will help us right here to reconnect with you. Again, I can't think of a sadder thing than to call yourself a Christian and go to church and never once hear Jesus speaking to you in that kind of personal way through scripture, through the word, through a message, but, but to hear Jesus speak to you. I can't think of anything sadder than to never know what it's like to be in a relationship with the living God. So Lord God, what an opportunity we have right now. Lord, I, I want to be a true Christian. I want to be somebody who is madly in love with you. I want to be zealous for you. Why? Because you are zealous for me. I don't want my heart to be drawn to other things, Lord. And even if it does, I want to I quickly come back. And I confess, Lord, I have a wicked heart that gets drawn to other things. I want to quickly come back. Every time I hear you knocking on the door of my heart, I want to quickly jump up and open the door. Jesus, I want to be with you. Thank you, Lord. I pray that that would be the prayer for all of us here. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's just come before him right now and let's just... I mean, you know your heart between you and Jesus, but you come before the Lord. And if none of this makes sense, or if you don't even really care about any of this, then what you need to hear is the gospel, because you are probably not saved. Because anyone who's genuinely saved, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus is the lover of your soul. He is the one that excites and fulfills and satisfies your soul the most. You know that. And if you don't know that, you need to hear the gospel. That Jesus lived the perfect life in your place because you are a sinner and you could never do it. And then he died on the cross to take the wrath of God upon himself. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Everyone is going to be faced with the judge one day. The judge is God. But Jesus took that in your place. And then he rose again. And he did it all for love. Because he loves you. Okay, you need to hear that message. But if you've already put your faith in Jesus, then just come before him. Let's, let's just reconnect with him. Let's commune with him. Thank you, Lord.